Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast. Today for episode 235, my guest is Neil Ferguson. He is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. He's also the author of 15 books, including The Ascent of Money. Neil and I chat about Bitcoin as a store of value, the pandemic and impacts on how we use money, his insights on debt around the world and in history, and also what's in our financial future. This show brought to you by swanbitcoin.com, the best place to auto stack your Bitcoin in the US with incredibly easy setup and low fees. They've recently announced availability in New York. They are now available in all 50 US states. Swan's service is built around regular stacking, but if you want to wire money in for a special smash buy of Bitcoin, support is coming for this very soon also. They are Bitcoin only. They're focused on teaching you to self-custody, so you should send all your new kind of friends there, or if you are new to Bitcoin, this is a great choice for you. This is a company focused on helping customers stack sats safely and easily. Go to swanbitcoin.com to sign up. For those of you looking to secure your coins with multi-signature unchained capital are building Bitcoin native financial services using multi-signature vaults. So these are designed for ultra-secure long-term storage. And if you want a hand, if you want the white glove treatment in setting it up, their team will teach you about multi-signature. They'll ship you two hardware wallets. They'll answer your questions and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault when you sign up for their vault concierge service. And if you use my code Levera, you get a discount. Unchained also offer an OTC desk for purchases $50,000 and higher. And their products are also great for those of you interested in using a self-directed Bitcoin retirement account or if you're a company looking to move Bitcoin to Treasury. So go and check them out. Go to unchained-capital.com. This show also brought to you by CypherSafe, producing the Cypher Wheel product. If you've got a Bitcoin hardware wallet and you're just using that paper seed, what would you do if your house went up on fire? Make sure you've got a metal backup product like the Cypher Wheel so that it is fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper evident. With the Cypher Wheel, you get the wheel and some tiles and you slide them in to back up the words of your Bitcoin seed. So make sure you or your loved ones have access to your Bitcoins if an accident occurs. Go and order yours at cyphersafe.io and use the code Lavera for a discount. Neil, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be with you. So Neil, I, I see you have recently been commenting about Bitcoin and you wrote an excellent uh, opinion piece as well. Uh, I'd love to start with a little bit of your background on, you know, what was your first impression of Bitcoin and then how did that shift over time? Well, Stefan, I uh, published a book entitled The Ascent of Money in uh, 2008, almost simultaneously with the publication of the original Bitcoin paper by Satoshi. And of course, that meant that the, there was no discussion of Bitcoin in, in the first edition of The Ascent of Money. Uh, a few years later, uh, it must have been, let's see now, in the uh, early 2000s, my then 15-year-old son said to me, hey, dad, uh, there's this amazing thing called Bitcoin that you really need to get into, and we should buy some. Um, thinking back, this must have been 2004. No, that can't be right. It must have been later than that. It was maybe 2014. 14, yeah. yeah. And I said, oh, come on, Lachie, th this... Uh, 
this isn't going to work. I did a little bit of background reading and I said, in a very kind of patronizing uh, professor dad way, there's never going to be a, a viable future for something like this, because if it were to be successful, it would pose too big a threat to the state's monopoly on money, which has been maintained for most of uh, uh, the four millennia we've had money. So uh, this, is, uh, this is not something that, that I want to pay much attention to. Well, you can imagine the conversation that we were having three years later, uh, four years later, uh, in the big 2017 run-up in, in Bitcoin prices. And he was reminding me on a regular basis of the uh, big bills we'd left on the sidewalk or the Bitcoins we'd left on the sidewalk. And at this, this point, I was beginning to learn some humility, as all middle-aged men should. I mean, if you're in your mid-50s, as I am, you better be listening to your teenage children and your 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 twenty-something children on a whole range of issues. I mean, all, almost every issue, in fact, you need to take their views seriously. So I I turned off over a new leaf at that point and embarked on a really quite serious attempt to understand Bitcoin and crypto more generally. I had just moved from the East Coast at Harvard to the West Coast at Stanford at the Hoover Institution. So I was kind of well placed to educate myself better and spent a lot of the last three years uh, with people much better versed in crypto than I was, just learning really. Uh, everybody should keep on learning. And, um, and, and so when I came to revise The Ascent of Money to produce a 10th anniversary edition in 2018, I had uh, realized how wrong I had been. And in that updated edition, two, there were two new chapters uh, which dealt with the post-financial crisis uh, world and with the rise of, of crypto and, and the, the transformation of money generally. And the conclusion that I came to, and this is now more than two years ago, was that Bitcoin was going to have a, a successful future. I disbelieved the negative view many people took in the aftermath of the 2017 bubble, if that's the right term, when people like Nuru Rabini were predicting that Bitcoin and everything else would go to zero, I realized that was wrong and argued in the Ascent of Money second edition that actually Bitcoin would likely appreciate because it had significant upside as a store of value, a new kind of digital asset, which in some ways resembled the appeal of gold to a, an investor. So my basic thought experiment in 2018 was, if every millionaire in the world puts 0.2% of his or her net worth into Bitcoins, then you're really talking $15,000 as a price. And if it's 1%, well, it's a lot more. So I was kind of, from that point on, uh, a Bitcoin bull and still am. And indeed what's happened this year has very much borne out that view. But credit where it's due, it was my son Lachlan, uh, who is now 21, who, uh, who put me right and uh, continues to be a source of insight on, on a whole range of investment issues. That's a really, really cool story. And I think it mirrors the story that many people have that when first they, they hear about Bitcoin, they think, oh, it's a scam, it'll never work. I don't trust this thing. 
And yet over time, it has grown and it's gone from zero to call it a $350 billion market. And so it, I think this uh, narrative as well has shifted now. More people are willing to call it a nascent store of value as opposed to, let's call it gold, which might be the blue chip uh, store of value for, for some people. Uh, so do you have you seen that narrative shift as well, uh, even in the last year or two? I think there's been a remarkable shift uh, this year in particular, uh, a succession of eminent investors, Stan, Stan Druckenmiller, for example, have said, oh, I get it now. Uh, others, Ray Dalio, have said, I don't get it, but I get that I don't get it. And I think there's been, in that sense, quite a, a shift in sentiment. There's also the, the institutional uh, adoption that you're you're seeing, which I I mentioned in my recent Bloomberg opinion piece, uh, PayPal and and Stripe and others. So I think that the process of individual uh, high net worth uh, adoption and institutional adoption is really gathering speed. I think the pandemic, uh, as in so much else, has uh, accelerated this process. It's now a commonplace to say that what typically would have taken 10 years has taken 10 months in 2020. I think it's true of Bitcoin just as it's true of a whole range of different uh, tech phenomena. People had to think a lot more seriously about a world in which old school modes of payment and indeed old school asset classes were taking a hammering. Would you rather have had value stocks in 2020 or Bitcoins? It's a no brainer. So I think um, this, this has really been a noticeable feature of the year. And I think as a historian, that this shouldn't surprise us because uh, the most disastrous pandemic in all history, the Black Death in the 1340s, had a similar impact on the monetization of uh, the English and other West European economies, which in the period between the fall of the Roman Empire and the uh, advent of, of a recognizably modern Europe had really become not quite cashless, but close to cashless with feudal relationships based on barter and the payment in labor uh, as the dominant form. That was the essence really of feudalism. And the Black Death changed that uh, to a remarkable extent. It wasn't something I could go into in detail in the article. There wasn't space, but it's really a very important point about Western Europe in the mid 14th century, that, that monetization is one of the real consequences of the Black Death. So I think if a pandemic or any really big historical disruption, there's potentially an accelerant of, of, of monetary change. And uh, we had these innovations already, uh, not only Bitcoin, but a whole range of other uh, forms of cryptocurrency, Ethereum, and we have the phenomenon of decentralized finance, all of this, I think, uh, has been accelerated by the events of this year. And that's a good thing, because from my vantage point, there are a number of plausible monetary futures for the world. Uh, one of them is a world in which fiat currencies, the post Bretton Woods currencies produced by central banks and banking systems are debased. And we've seen a remarkable expansion 
in the supply of dollars this year as a result of the policies that have been pursued in response to the pandemic. That's not a particularly appealing future if we imagine uh, higher inflation in a bunch of countries, potentially a weaker dollar. The second and even more worrying future is one in which uh, Chinese central bank digital currency starts to become widely adopted, not only in the uh, second largest economy in the world, but in many of its trading partners. And, th and that's a system for monetary surveillance. The fundamental point of the way the PBOC is designing its central bank digital currency is that all transactions will be on a centralized database immediately accessible to the Communist Party. That is definitely not a monetary future that I like the look of. The third monetary future is one in which uh, there are uh, a multiple uh, multiple forms of money coexisting. And Bitcoin is one of these and perhaps uh, potentially uh, a very important one. I'm going to say something that not everybody listening will agree with. I don't think that Bitcoin is going to be, as it presently uh, exists, a means of payment that we use directly. You're not going to be, unless you really are uh, very different from me, buying Starbucks espressos or lattes with Bitcoin. But Bitcoin is unquestionably working as a store of value and a, a digital asset. I called it a, an option on digital gold in the ascent of money. I quite like that phrase. I got it from my friend Matt McLennan, who runs First Eagle. And I think as as such, it has the potential, and here I'm going to be a little speculative, to be a reserve asset, to be the basis of a, a system. Uh, the idea of a Bitcoin standard is not an original one. It's been discussed before, but that's where this parallel with gold makes the most sense. Because Bitcoin is something with finite supply in a world of technological abundance, because everything else online is just infinitely re re replicable. I mean, Bitcoin is this potentially uh, unique scarce asset in the world of digital abundance. And you could imagine a situation in which we would want to have a significant portion, not only of wealth, but of reserves in this form. Uh, and that would then be the like gold in the late 19th century, the way in which large-scale transactions were cleared between nations or between large-scale entities. Uh, but you and I would be buying our lattes with some other currency, but that currency might actually be connected uh, to Bitcoin. So that's a much more appealing monetary future than the other two, in my mind. Not least because we get back to one of the characteristic features of uh, previous monetary eras, uh, an era in which transactions were not all under the direct supervision of the state. I mean, it's true that the state had, for most of history, some kind of monopoly over money. But a monopoly over coins doesn't allow you to trace every transaction, uh, because cash transactions are, by their nature, anonymous. I think for people who are law-abiding, there should be some, in a free society, some right to privacy uh, in, our, in our payments. Uh, we, we shouldn't really be subject to a completely arbitrary surveillance of every transaction we carry out. 
So I'm increasingly attracted to the idea of a Western financial future, because I think that should be distinguished from the Chinese financial future, in which uh, there is not a completely libertarian paradise when we can do what we like, uh, but a world in which, uh, as in previous eras, we have some monetary autonomy, some financial privacy, provided we remain within uh, the law. I, I think you made some really interesting points. And uh, certainly your point about scarcity in this world was very uh, Julian Simon inspired, right? It's very, um, it's this idea that anything that we really want, we can go and make more of it. So now we actually need to think of ways to forcefully or programmatically make our money scarce and have that as our actual reserve asset. And we can build layers up on top of that that are used in a more transactional you know, day-to-day -day commerce way. An example of that might be the Lightning Network. Um, but certainly I think uh, most Bitcoiners uh, would probably agree with your assessment there that most of the you know, longer term day-to-day -day commerce will not be done on the Bitcoin blockchain. It will right. be on higher layers. And some of that may be you know, Lightning Network. Some of that may be through our bank. So our, bank, our retail bank may help manage kind of those connections. Uh, but I think part of the revolution of Bitcoin is that now if you want to, you can be your own bank and you can right. spin up your own little node and uh, run your own uh, lightning channels and do your own um, kind of aspects of this. Um, but I think to bring it back to what's really important, I think a really in interesting concept, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is uh, it's by Nick Zabo. He's one of the pioneers in this space. And he's spoken about this idea called deep safety, as opposed to shallow safety. And so what he's trying to get out there is, is he's saying, if you're just thinking shallow, oh, I want one asset that zigs while the other zags and I just want kind of a diversification and it's just numbers on the screen and you know that's one thing but he's saying here deep safety is more like a fundamental analysis of the underlying political and legal environment and so the point that someone like Nick Zabo would make is that uh, real estate and gold have you know some level of safety based on local kind of security but using bitcoin in the trust minimized way gives you another whole level of safety. And that potentially is why it makes sense to be the base of a new monetary system. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that idea. I have a lot of respect for Nick, uh, but full disclosure, I, I haven't read the relevant uh, essay on that point, uh, but I, I'll take your summary of it and try and work with it. Uh, I think the, the notion that you can get uh, safety from diversification is quite central to most uh, modern ideas, theories about finance. But when the correlations go to one, diversification can't save you. And there have been a number of periods in the recent past when we've seen that and diversification strategies have been remarkably poor. Uh, if you think back to what happened in March, when the world had a really acute financial spasm, uh, that was a moment when uh, you actually didn't get a whole lot of protection from a standard diversified portfolio, uh, especially when there were wobbles around the treasury market. So I think there's an important point to be made here that diversification is not really, uh, it's not really safety in, uh, in a meaningful sense. At least it, it can be much of the time it's one of the arguments I've made for holding Bitcoin. My basic 
view is that if, if Bitcoin behaves eccentrically relative to other assets, that is a good and desirable feature. But it's right to draw a distinction between that benefit of diversification and some deeper notion of, of financial security. Of course, in a world of, of states capable of confiscation, there's really no such thing as a, a truly secure asset. Remember that uh, the Roosevelt administration was able to make it illegal for Americans to hold gold in 1933. And I know it's hard to imagine, but there were literally FBI agents tracking down people with uh, holdings of gold above the legal minimum and prosecuting people who did that. Land is, of course, uh, a wonderful thing uh, to own. I am a big believer in uh, the fact that they're not making any more of it. And indeed, uh, that there is a certain erosion of the available land, not least because of climate change. But you can have that confiscated too. I mean, think of all the regimes in the last hundred years that have expropriated landowners. Uh, most of the revolutions, most obviously the revolutions led by Lenin and Mao, uh, were associated with whole-scale expropriation of landowners. If you want to be given a sense of what that's like, read Frank Dakota's amazing books, including his book on the, the 1949 revolution, when landowners were, were just shot uh, for the crime of owning land. So Marxism, remember, it's an amazingly potent ideology that refuses to die. And, uh, and its basic objective is to expropriate your land. So I'm not sure there's a, a state of the world in which we can say we uh, unassailably and impregnably own wealth, uh, because in every form, it, it is capable of being confiscated in a revolutionary situation. And I think that's an important lesson of history. But part of what intrigues me is that we as human beings struggle a bit to foresee disasters. And it's partly because disasters don't happen that frequently uh, it, to the, let's say the average developed country. They happen pretty frequently in some less developed countries. But it's also because the incidence of disaster can be quite random, or disasters can be governed by power laws, not normally distributed. So psychologically, we struggle a little bit to envisage them. And this is where Nassim Taleb's idea of a black swan is helpful. We just kind of are evolved and educated to expect normal distributions, and we struggle with power laws. But in fact, the big disasters in history, and this is a theme of my forthcoming book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, is that most history is just disaster, uh, punctuated equilibria. And disasters, are, whether you're talking about an earthquake, a volcanic eruption, a wildfire, a pandemic, a war, a financial crisis, disasters are just very, very difficult to foresee uh, because none of them, no, none of the things I've just listed uh, uh, is normally distributed. So I think in thinking about Bitcoin, you have to consider the world, a state of the world in which there is actually a significant level of, of political dislocation in which a one-party totalitarian state is significantly expanding its power, and that is what is happening right now under Xi Jinping, and that therefore what Bitcoin offers is not perfect security, but a form of security. I mean, as long as the internet's working, uh, and that's a pretty important uh, precondition. Um, 
and you have mobility and have your key, uh, then there is some form of, of wealth, which is quite tricky to confiscate compared with the money in your bank. So that, that's, I think, an important reason why Bitcoin has a, attracted adherence among some of my South American friends. I've learned a lot in recent years from Wences Casares, an, an Argentinian. Um, I have a good friend also from Argentina, Pierpaolo Barbieri, who's taught me a lot about fintech. If you grew up in a country where overnight the currency could just be changed or the bank accounts could simply be seized or devalued, naturally you find attractive the idea of money that is not dependent on banks. And let's face it, most money in the world today is bank money, not central bank money, but bank money. Um, and it, it exists uh, because of a strange evolution that, that began with fractional reserve banking and gave us the world today in which most countries have a relatively small number of very large banks that extract rents from people because we all need to have bank accounts to get paid, to pay our bills, all the rest of it. And the essence of banks is that they kind of charge, uh, they charge their, their fees, they extract their rents because they can exploit informational asymmetries. And, uh, and, and actually that doesn't need to be, that doesn't really need to be the basis for financial life in the 21st century. So that's what's exciting a bit about Bitcoin. Above all, to me, it's exciting that you can have peer-to-peer -peer transactions without third-party verification because you no longer have that third party extracting rents from the informational asymmetries. That, that is a very exciting phenomenon and it doesn't really have any, any obvious precedent in history. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And uh, I'm also reminded uh, from your book, The Ascent of Money, you, you mentioned as well, I think, uh, some of the work of Peruvian economist Hernando de Soto. And you were talking about how bureaucracy and the difficulty of establishing property title in places like South America, uh, that can actually be why some of the poorer countries are poor, because they just don't have that same infrastructure. And so perhaps it's like in a similar line of thinking, it's that Bitcoin is providing a new line of infrastructure that people can sort of store uh, their value. And uh, in doing so, they can start to accumulate capital. And that helps start that process of society, uh, or at least uh, speed that process of a society advancing and, and becoming more prosperous. Hernando de Soto is a remarkable man who's uh, inspired me for many years. Uh, his mystery of capital made, made the point, which I guess I'd seen with my own eyes, that a significant proportion of the world's wealth is outside the financial system and therefore can't be used as collateral. And he wrote that before uh, we had even heard of Bitcoin. More recently, Hernandez has been exploring ways in which blockchain can be the basis for easily titling the property of the poor, something that he's been working on in his native Peru, but has also looked at uh, in North Africa. Everybody listening to this should, should make a point of reading Hernando's work. He's a tremendously creative and, and unorthodox economic thinker. He's one of the few people who came up with a really good explanation for the Arab revolutions, the so-called Arab Spring. Again, looking at ways in which insecurity of property rights rendered the small business class of countries like Tunisia and Egypt revolutionary. Uh, so I do think Hernando is really one of the most interesting uh, thinkers in this whole area. And that ultimately what we're seeing 
in the 21st century is a revolution in financial inclusion, which is taking all kinds of different forms. The key point in a place like Peru, and it's also true in Argentina, it's, uh, it's true actually in much of, of South America, is that really large proportions of the population are outside the financial system altogether. They don't have bank accounts. Similar things are true in Africa and even, even more so. The combination of the advent of smartphones uh, and the technology that you can, uh, you can put on a smartphone is really changing that. And I think Bitcoin's part of that wider story where financial innovation happens online, lowers the barriers to entry, makes it possible for a working class uh, kid in a Buenos Aires slum to have an account uh, with an online uh, payment uh, uh, site. And he can therefore enter the financial system, which is his mum and dad really couldn't do. So I do think that that's part of, that's what Bitcoin is part of. Now, to, to get to the point where you're actually able to uh, own a Bitcoin uh, is a stretch for most people in the slums of Buenos Aires. Uh, but I think what's happening in those countries, and especially in the most screwed up of countries like Venezuela, is that the people who do have some wealth see Bitcoin as a really invaluable store of value that um, it's very hard for a renegade state to, to get its hands on. And, and that's why, I think that's why Latin America is an important part of this story because there have been so many bad monetary experiments and so many arbitrary acts of confiscation that people instinctively know, oh, this is a solution to a problem that we've had repeatedly to say nothing of all the inflations that there have been. I mean, part of the interesting thing about the world today uh, to take a step back, is that it's not a very inflationary world. And I remember when I first moved to, to California, I was struck by how many people pitching me crypto ideas or talking about Bitcoin would say, oh, well, this is going to be a terrific protection against inflation. And uh, I would say to them, why are you worried about inflation? Everybody in the Fed is worried about deflation, and we haven't really had an inflationary problem in the developed world since the 1970s. And so you're kind of solving a problem that seems kind of like last generations. And I, th I think that's, that's been one of the little headwinds that, uh, that Bitcoin has encountered in the Northern Hemisphere, that, that the argument you need to protect yourself from inflation doesn't actually resonate, certainly with anybody much younger than me. I remember double-digit inflation in the UK in the 1970s, but I'm quite old. And the first, my first ever contribution to literature was a letter to the Glasgow Herald complaining about the price of school shoes because I couldn't believe how much more they cost each year. Uh, and my mother had to go buy them because my feet kept growing. It was actually my introduction to the problem of inflation at the age of 10. But for most people your age, there just hasn't been an encounter with double digit inflation unless they have lived uh, somewhere like uh, Argentina or Brazil uh, or in an African country. The most, the few hyperinflation episodes we've seen in Zimbabwe and in Venezuela are really conspicuous by uh, their low number. So I think part of what we've forgotten about is what real monetary instability looks like, uh, because in the developed world, it's, it's largely faded from memory. And the problem of the last 20 years has actually been avoiding deflation rather than worrying about inflation. Back to the show in a moment. 
Nox is a Bitcoin custodian dedicated to ensuring their insurance protection covers the full value of their customers' assets. For example, suppose a fiduciary wants to hold $250 million of Bitcoin with Nox. Nox will seek to obtain $250 million of insurance dedicated exclusively to that account and adjustable to volatility. No fractional coverage or narrow scope. Insurance for what it's worth, a tool to transfer risk. If you are a Bitcoin company, investment fund, trust, or family office, check out Nox for your insured custody. That website is is noxcustody.com. And finally, Lend at HodlHodl is a global Bitcoin-backed lending platform that allows you to lend and borrow anonymously on your own terms. HodlHodl offers a peer-to-peer lending solution, ensuring a secure and transparent collateral storage system by providing a unique multi-signature escrow for each deal. This is a way to grow your savings and earn attractive returns on your investment. So if you have any stable coins lying around, create your offers and earn interest by lending on Lend at HodlHodl. Or if you are a Bitcoiner and you need some liquidity, you can borrow stable coins and keep on hodling. With HodlHodl's Lend platform, you set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and interest rates. Go and check it out at lend.hodlhodl.com. I see. So uh, it may be, it may well be that um, certain nations, as you mentioned, so certain South American nations, they see the anti-inflation case much more clearly than we do in the Western world, right? Me, uh, me here in Australia, people in the US, the UK, they may not feel it as often unless they're more acutely aware of these kinds of things. And I think uh, this is another point that I've seen you mention as well, which is that just the general level of financial literacy is not that great. And so I think it's just that most people, you know, wouldn't like if you talk to the random you know, guy on the street, lady on the street, they may not really understand, um, you know, the concept of they might not be thinking deeply about, oh, what's my real rate of return? What's my return after inflation? Uh, and if, if you were to ask sort of basic financial questions, they may not necessarily get those right. And perhaps that's just part of the journey. Um, I'm also interested to get your thoughts around uh, just in a broader macro sense, where, where a lot of governments around the world are going into more debt. And what what does that mean from a... Uh, uh, are there historical insights there around the typical things that happen when governments reach a certain level of debt? And what does that mean for the currencies? An example might be that uh, people are less inclined to borrow from, or rather to lend to that currency because they have less confidence that they won't inflate their way out of it. Well, this is a very live question uh, because we've seen an enormous increase in public debt this year. Uh, even larger, actually, than the increase that followed the financial crisis of 2008-2009. The trajectory of the U.S. federal debt is uh, looking more and more like that of World War II, and it's breaking through the 100% of GDP ceiling and and going rapidly upwards uh, towards 150%. Now, most economists, certainly uh, the mainstream economists uh, at the... uh, Harvard, MIT kind of institution would say to you, it's not a problem. So Larry Summers and Jason Furman just published a paper this week saying there's a new paradigm in town because of secular stagnation. Interest rates are going to be very low for a long time. And therefore, the the government has considerable latitude to run up a large stock of debt no downside risk here. And Olivier Blanchard has, has essentially said the same. This is the new consensus amongst uh, the mainstream 
uh, Keynesian-influenced economists. And I think it will influence uh, the Biden administration as it thinks about its options uh, starting next year. Now, you've got to be a little careful taking on Larry Summers. Uh, it would be significantly easier to take on a charging rhinoceros because there's no more combative uh, and powerful intellect uh, in economics than, than Larry. Uh, and I think one of the lessons of the post-financial crisis period was it's a smart move uh, to be on Larry's side because Larry's argument from 2014 was we're in secular stagnation. You do not need to be worried about inflation. Interest rates are not about to normalize. And it was a mistake to dial back the fiscal stimulus in the Obama administration. And it's a mistake for the Fed to try to normalize rates. And Larry won those arguments. And those who took the other side, and I occasionally did, and said, oh, dear, um, quantitative easing is going to generate some inflationary pressure, we were wrong. So that makes me very cautious, uh, because I think I don't want to get back into those bitter battles over austerity, which I think ultimately uh, were, were won by the secular stagnation school. However, uh, and this is a big however, the aftermath of a pandemic is quite different from the aftermath of a financial crisis. The reason that the financial crisis had this long hangover was that it was about some, some very fundamental things like bank capitalization. The inadequate capitalization of American banks was a major reason why it was a slow, uh, a slow process to get uh, the economy back to full employment. And it turned out that just as the Keynesians had argued, you needed to do additional fiscal stimulus. Of course, when Trump did it, or when Mitch McConnell did it, when the Republicans did it with their tax cuts, the Keynesians didn't cheer because it was the wrong kind of stimulus <laughs> politically. Uh, but oddly enough, Trump was the Keynesian candidate in 2016, and the Republicans did fiscal stimulus. It was just that they did it through tax cuts uh, rather than uh, increased expenditure on a whole range of public works. So here we are in 2020, and we've just been through this high-speed depression where the events of 10 years were compressed into 10 months. Um, the economy had recovered, but as I remember predicting earlier in the year, back in April, it was like uh, uh, a giant tortoise or a reverse square root where it kind of went down very steeply, and then it came back up the tortoise's neck. But then it got to the tortoise's head, which was some way below where the tortoise's shell was. And that's because as long as we've got COVID-19, there is about 5% or maybe more of GDP that we just can't bring back online because there's a whole bunch of service sectors that can't function. Uh, and whether it's adaptation by people or rules issued by state governments, the economy is, is down there on the tortoise's head. It can't get back up to where it was on the back of the shell at the beginning of this year. But vaccines are coming with high efficacy and they're gonna be distributed pretty rapidly. And I think many economists underestimate how rapidly we will therefore bounce back, more rapidly than we did after 2008, 2009. American households have probably about a trillion dollars of forced saving ready to spend. And they're itching to spend it. The idea that the savings rate is going to remain very elevated through next year after we've got vaccinated and we can get back to restaurants and bars and cruise liners and crowded planes and parties, all those things that people are missing, 
I think is wrong. So imagine the following scenario. We bounce back faster than expected next year. By the summer, things are really frothy because everybody's enjoying the return to normality. There are some supply constraints left over from the disruptions of the lockdowns. I don't, wouldn't be wholly surprised if inflation surprised the Fed a little bit to the upside above the 2% target. Now, the Fed has said it's relaxed about overshooting. It wants to overshoot, sure. And I can get the uh, rationale for that. But remember, there are these spectators called the bond market looking on and asking themselves, are they really sure they know what they're doing? There are people like me who read Alan Meltzer's History of the Federal Reserve many years ago, the late lamented Alan Meltzer. And we remember what the mistakes of the late 60s and 70s were, where essentially the central bank, the Fed and other central banks around the world were too passive in the face of changing inflation expectations and fiscal imbalances. So I put it to you that there is a non-trivial probability that things do surprise uh, in terms of inflation, inflation expectations, and that the bond market reacts to that. You do not need a significant move in rates to make the debt burdens of the developed and developing world suddenly quite scary. It's all about the debt service. I pointed this out 20 years ago in a book called The Cash Nexus. The debt GDP ratio is not really a meaningful number. I mean, essentially, you're looking at a stock relative to a flow. What really matters is this. Are your debt service payments, are they actually sustainable relative to your growth rate? And if not, then you're in what's known as nasty fiscal arithmetic very quickly. So that, I think, is the key issue. What if secular stagnation turns out to have been true after the financial crisis, but not after the pandemic, then I think the central banks of the world are going to be in a very nerve-wracking game of chicken with bond investors. And although the Fed has been buying every new bond that the Treasury has issued this year pretty much, if you imagine the situation a year from now, I think the credibility of the Fed could be on the line if there is a significant exit by foreign investors from dollar-denominated bonds because people look at the numbers and they look at inflation and they think, oh dear, uh, it's the 1970s and Joe Biden is Jimmy Carter. I mean, that's, again, not a kind of high probability scenario, but it's not a 0% probability scenario either. That's a big however, um, but uh, a big one I wanted to get into was uh, you were mentioning around bonds and interest rates. So, I think it'll be interesting to get your views on where we are in terms of interest rates, you know, today in 2020, they're obviously very low. How does that compare historically? And what other times in history can, would interest rates have gone this low? It, it, does it not seem like a bit of an aberration that we've got almost 0% rates? And uh, if you consider from a real perspective, people are earning negative uh, because of inflation. Right. So the nominal rates are very unusual. The real rates, not so much. Let me take a step back. My student, Paul Schmelzing, did uh, an amazing doctoral dissertation at Harvard. It's been partly published uh, by the Bank of England in a couple of working papers. There'll be a book soon. Now, what he shows is, by going all the way back to the 1200s and looking at 
at interest rates from a whole variety of different debt instruments, there has been super secular stagnation in that nominal rates have trended down century after century uh, since even before the Black Death. And therefore our present nominal rates are very remarkable in history. It's hard to find periods when nominal rates were this low. In fact, it's pretty much impossible. And, uh, and so that, that is one of those rare occasions when the economic historian can say unprecedented. But the real rate story is not so straightforward because in fact, there have been lots of periods in history when real rates were negative. Uh, that, that, for example, happened in the 1970s. And it was one of the reasons investors uh, in bonds uh, had a torrid time in that decade. So I think the nominal rate story is remarkable, the real rate story, not so much. Uh, so I, in other words, a, a relatively small amount of inflation at the moment can get you negative rates because the nominal rates are so, are so low. And it's the real rates that matter in the end to an investor who's thinking rationally about, about returns. And that, I, I guess, is another reason to think that there'll be some pretty nervous, uh, trigger-happy uh, uh, bond vigilantes if inflation does uh, start to surge at any point. And that, that I think, is the, the great unknown. We've seen a little bit of life in inflation expectations ever since the vaccine breakthrough news came. But I think what really, for my money, matters is where we'll be by the summer of next year, uh, given that, uh, as I said, a vaccine that works is a form of stimulus more powerful than anything in the Keynesian playbook, because it is a, a promise to consumers that they can go and do stuff that they've been prohibited from doing for the better part of a year. And the analogy here that I quite like is with the aftermath of the war. You know, when peace is declared, uh, there typically is uh, a little boom. That was certainly true uh, after World War II in, in the United States, when control started to be removed, uh, you saw a great surge in consumer spending because people had really been forced to save. I think this is, is one of the ways in which COVID-19 is a bit like a war. And when you know, Moderna and BioNTech come along and say, we've got a vaccine, that's, a, that's like saying peace. So it's not so much VE day or VJ day, it's sort of V-COVID. Uh, day, victory over COVID. And I think people will respond to that in, in a way which will be exuberant, to use a word that uh, has, has done its, uh, has done the rounds in, in modern financial history. As I said, we can't be certain. It could be, after all, that there are problems with the vaccines that we haven't foreseen, and that would be enormously dispiriting and, and depressing to people. Uh, it could be that uh, in the course of next year, some new form of disaster arises that we didn't quite think about, because we're always surprised. We're always looking at the last disaster, expecting to repeat itself, and then along comes some new form of disaster. But if everything else is equal and people can spend a trillion dollars in bars, in restaurants, on vacations, etc., in a mood of it's over, I think we could see quite a quite a frothy middle of 2021, and that will be the moment that uh, that the Fed is tested, and it will most likely be tested because the dollar will slide, uh, and foreign investors will will want to exit 
US denominated uh, US dollar denominated bonds in preference for say euro denominated bonds or for that matter even RMB denominated bonds because uh, there will just be more attractive uh, real returns in in those instruments right and uh, also wanted to get your thoughts around uh, the concept of financial repression right so if if governments are in this very high debt situation and they essentially do not want to let interest rates rise, do we risk seeing that kind of Japanification in other countries around the world that simply do not want to let the rates rise? So they just keep everyone in that sort of low growth sort of environment. I certainly think that Japan is a little bit of an experimental laboratory for all that we're discussing because in Japan, in the wake of its uh, financial crisis at the end of the 1980s, uh, there was a great surge in, in government debt far uh, above the levels in other countries. Uh, at the same time, uh, Japan had the, uh, the extreme case of the aging population, uh, and uh, it has spent decades trying to uh, solve the, the problem uh, of very low inflation expectations, uh, very low inflation, um, and, uh, and very low growth. And I suppose when I look at Europe, I, I think to myself, that's kind of the future for Germany, uh, because it will be very difficult with the rising debt of the Eurozone, the aging population, and what I think will be quite low growth to avoid being a version of Japan. I don't think it's necessarily the future of the United States uh, because the United States has fired bazookas uh, in a way that Japan never did. I mean, the bazookas fired back in the spring um, in terms of the, the level of government debt issued and the expansion of the, the Fed balance sheet. These are really big, uh, big, big bazookas. And the key issue here is that when... Uh, life returns to normal, I think that both consumers and banks will be quite eager to expand. And so I don't think it'll feel at all like post-crisis Japan in the US uh, next year. If it, if it feels like that anywhere, it'll be, it'll be actually in, in, in Germany um, and, and in Japan itself. Yeah. Um, I guess we're sort of coming to the end of our time. I wanted to just kind of take a step back and look a little bit further into the future. And let's imagine this idea that, you know, Bitcoin does become seen more like a reserve asset, right? So people aren't necessarily doing day-to-day -day stuff with it. What kind of a financial system, what kind of a, you know, do you see it being uh, like a credit system or an equity sort of style of system? If you had to kind of project out maybe 10 or 15 years, if you had to speculate, uh, we're kind of imagining what it might look like. Do you have any ideas what that could look like? I think that we'll spend a lot less time talking about banks in the financial future. And there'll be a kind of platform-based system for buying and selling financial services. I think that seems like a, a plausible future uh, we'll therefore see a significant uh, compression of the fees that financial services uh, companies can, can charge. Uh, and there'll be a decentralization of the system uh, in a whole range of different ways so that uh, it will look, I think, radically different 
10 years and 20 years from now. One of the points I made when I was updating the ascent of money was that not much actually changed between 2000 and 2018. We spent those 10 years putting patches on the system to make sure it didn't fall apart. But my prediction was that the next 10 years would see a financial revolution propelled by technology. And that financial revolution would do for familiar institutions such as banks, what uh, the technological revolution in e-commerce is currently doing to department stores. It will render a whole structure of finance uh, obsolete or at least obsolescent. I think most of us will uh, be able to conduct uh, our daily financial transactions on our smartphones with a variety of apps. I think the competition uh, to allow payments to be done at low cost will be such that I will no longer be uh, fleeced every time I need to send remittances to my wife's family uh, in Kenya and Somalia. And I think the whole remittances business will cease to be the, the nasty racket that it is. Uh, uh, frictionless and low cost payments uh, across borders will suddenly be a, a reality, which will be a great boon for the uh, poorer, uh, poorer proportion of humanity, I must say. Uh, because if you if you look at the fees that are charged for typically relatively small transactions across borders, they're absolutely extortionate. They are usury in the modern world. I think that it'll be a, a different world in terms uh, of the ways in which uh, we finance new ventures. Uh, and this, I think, is a, a thing that people struggle a bit with because they're so pre-programmed to think in terms of uh, of equity finance and the IPO is the culmination of your career uh, when you sell securities uh, through public markets. I'm not sure that that will necessarily be the dominant mo mode of, of financial uh, capitalism by the time we get to 2030, because there will actually be simpler ways uh, of raising money for, uh, for operations. And I sense that the era of private equity, the era of the, uh, the asset manager was, is passing uh, because uh, ultimately it will be possible to, to manage a portfolio with technology uh, and not pay the kind of fees and, and, uh, and rents that have been characteristic of, of, the last, uh, of the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, Bitcoin's future, which is really what we uh, should focus on in our final minutes, is to me the great unknown because it's in the hands of financial regulators. It's ultimately up, to, I think, to the US Treasury and the US Federal Reserve, whether the United States is creative about the financial future or conservative. It's been conservative for years. Washington's attitude has been for the last 20 years, we love SWIFT. We love payments uh, between banks uh, with this crunky, crank, cr cranky, clanky, clunky, what's the word I'm looking for? Clunky uh, technology dating back to the 1970s because it allows us to do financial sanctions and financial sanctions are the US superpower so much easier than sending the 82nd Airborne. So please, can we leave things as they are? That's not really a viable strategy. It's an opportunity for China to build an alternative payments architecture. I don't think it is smart to let that happen. The US, if it's smart, is going to use Bitcoin, a successful proven blockchain-based technology for peer-to-peer -peer payments, as part of its plan for an alternative financial architecture that is decentralized, that uh, allows uh, that kind of peer-to-peer payment to happen with minimal state surveillance 
and therefore creates an alternative to China's centralized artificial intelligence-based one-party rule panopticon, essentially the totalitarian dream, no human action outside the surveillance of the party. We've really got to offer people something better than that. And I don't think the answer is, we'll do the surveillance through Facebook. Uh, don't worry, Zuck is a good guy. We, we need something that is more authentically American. Remember, the American system of banking was designed from the outset to be decentralized and to guarantee significant privacy to the individual. The whole point of the United States is the liberty of the individual. And what's exciting about Bitcoin is it kind of fits into that model of American decentralized and relatively state-free finance. So the argument that I would make to the incoming Biden administration is, for heaven's sake, don't feel that you have to replicate the, the People's Bank of China playbook and build a digital central bank currency for the United States. That, that's like turning Chinese. Let's think about what's already working, what the United States has been good at, which is building cryptocurrency as a, as a new kind of, of money. And let's, let's make that part of our system. And if ultimately uh, Bitcoin becomes a reserve asset, which will take time with its price volatility obviously diminishing over time, then that's actually quite an exciting prospect because it makes to my mind, more sense to have uh, at the root of the system uh, a, a, a unit uh, of account that can't be debased. Um, I mean, why not? And we, we used gold for the better part of a century in the United States to provide that kind of anchor. We've been drifting anchorless since 1971. We've had one bout of inflation and the near out of deflation. I don't think one could look back and say, the fiat currency is awesome, let's keep it going. I think there's an opportunity to come up with something better. And, uh, and we don't need to reinvent it because it's been around now uh, for 11 successful years. And that's what for me is so exciting about, about Bitcoin and why my then 15 year old, now 21 year old son, Lachlan, was right and I was wrong. And I'm still old, not so old that I can't I can't learn a new trick. That was phenomenal, uh, Neil. Uh, finally, just for listeners who would like to follow you online, where is the best place for them to find you and follow you online? Well, I, I was once upon a time bullied into using Twitter uh, by my publisher. I kind of hate Twitter. Um, as a friend of mine once observed, it's like, you know, the biggest urinal wall in history. Uh, but use carefully it's not a bad way to follow writers so i'm on uh on twitter uh on twitter at n fergus i have a website <coughs> uh, which is just as you might predict neilferguson.com where you can find all my journalism i write every two weeks for bloomberg opinion a rather lengthy column the most recent one was about bitcoin and it just came out uh a little less than a week ago and i have a book as i mentioned doom coming out which will be my 16th book uh, published at the end of April uh, next year. So there are lots of ways you can you can follow my stuff. And if you like TV more than any of the uh, previously mentioned media, I did a PBS series called Networld back at the beginning of this year, which uh, not, uh, not wrongly uh, pointed out some of the dangers of a highly networked world. Uh, I think that's still available to watch via PBS. 
Fantastic. So listeners, I'll put Neil's links in the show notes. And Neil, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. It's been a really, truly interesting conversation. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Stefan. It's been a pleasure. Show notes are available at stefanlevera.com slash 235 for this episode. And make sure you share the show with your friends and family. Thanks, and I'll see you in the Citadels. Yeah.